You're listening to a sermon from New Harvest Church in Salem, Oregon. We believe that you were created for connection to Christ and a community of his followers. This sermon is an extension of our desire to become more like Christ by engaging God's word within our weekly gatherings. If you are in the area, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about New Harvest and our ministries at newharvestch.org. This special day at New Harvest, always our Sunday gatherings we enjoy so much. So I'm glad that you're here. You know, I've had a few people say to me, you know, uh, since you and, uh, uh, or since Tyler's going to be the lead pastor, maybe, um, maybe you should, you know, you could maybe just be the worship pastor then. You got, you know, you just flip roles, you know. And, um, and I know when they're asking me this, they're kind of going, yeah, <laughs> sure. But, uh, in my day, I played a little guitar, uh, emphasis on little, and um, my wife and I were at this movie called uh, Jesus Music, and in um, 1972, there was this huge gathering of 50,000 young people, and, uh, and Kathy was there, good, so... So, Kathy, you're going to help me on this, all right? So, there's a, a song that they kind of did there that, uh, and you're saying my, my um, guitar isn't mic'd. Uh, that's on purpose. And anyway, it goes like this. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that all unity may one day be restored, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. <laughs> that was the first song I learned on guitar, and that's the last one. Yes, so fun. Well, you know, I get to preach quite often, and um, I always have a little sense of nervousness when I'm preaching, but that was the most nervous I've been in a long time. <laughs> My hand was going like this as I was doing it. So, uh, well... Is there any, like, um, a vote? Let's just switch Tyler and me, and I'll be the worship pastor. Everybody's going, don't take that vote. <laughs> That's going to be a bad vote. And why would that be? Why would that be? Because we really care about worship. Worship is so crucial to us. It's like the significance of expressing our love and adoration for God. And we want to do it in the, the, the best, the most excellent way. And if I'm leading guitar, that won't happen. So, you know, we all worship. And, and it's easily, easily seen as our theme today. And, and as we worship, it's like what really flows out of our hearts. There was this guy named Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he said it pretty well. And uh, I put his quote, 
Be careful what you worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Now, out in the lobby, there's going to be a lady named Deb Hubble, and she's right up front, and she would love to talk to you about a conference that's happening on November 5th and 6th. And some of you are already signed up to go, and you're going to pay her, but maybe you uh, didn't get a chance or you missed the opportunity up to this point, and you would like to go. Well, this is the last day, so see Deb by the shelf in the lobby, and she'll help you out. Another thing happening this month, and something that we wonder if it'll be like last year, which last year was amazing and crazy. At the same time, we had a trunk or treat event, and we had hundreds of people come. Estimated at 800 people We ran out of candy three times, raced to the store and everything, and finally uh, we went from four to six, and by quarter to six we said, sorry, no candy left, (laughs) and everybody went home. But anyway, no, there there wasn't many people left. It was great. So we have two things that you can do. You can donate candy for this event, and you can also donate your trunk and decorate it. That would be really great to do. And then also... As a way of connection, we have our connection cards in the pouches in front of you, and, the, and an usher will be available to collect the connection card as you go out. We'd love to know if you're here new with us, if you have a prayer request, maybe you have a question of the staff. Uh, we'd like to know all about those things. That's our connection card, and you can fill that out. And finally, at the close of this gathering, Mark Hubble and Ben Milner. Ben Milner. Ben Milner, Mark Hubble, two elders will be excited to greet you and meet with you, talk about the church, ask any questions, get to know them, and if you have any questions specific to the transition, and if Barry's going to be the worship pastor, you can ask them. They'll have a quick answer to that one. So, welcome. We are excited for our journey through the book of Daniel, and we're going to pick it up today. Now... I, you will, most of you know that I grew up in Minnesota, and Minnesota is uh, famous for a few things. There are 10,000 lakes in Minnesota, and you say, oh, they're exaggerating. No, there's actually like 12,000 some. And the headwaters of the Mississippi River, the largest river in the United States, starts in Minnesota. And then there's the Mayo Clinic, and that's kind of a worldwide known uh, entity. And, of course... Something famous about Minnesota is that Bob Dylan is from Minnesota, right? And so that's really, uh, that has put the state, uh, you know, front and center. And Bob Dylan's kind of known for a few things like blowing in the wind and like a rolling stone. But he also sang a song that I'm thinking of today, Gotta Serve Somebody. It was on his only gospel album, and it was called Slow Train Coming. And this song went like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve someone. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And then seven verses long, I won't do them all, the last verse goes like this. You may be Terry. You may, be, you may call me Jimmy. 
You may call me Bobby. You may call me Zimmy. You may call me RJ. You may call me Ray. You may call me anything. But no matter what you say, you're going to have to serve somebody. And that, that's a little bit of the inspiration of the title this morning, Gotta Worship Somebody. And when I say that, got to serve somebody and got to worship somebody, you can put them together because in the scriptures, there's a word for worship that is sometimes translated serve, really. Uh, when it says in Philippians 3.3, 3, to serve God by the Spirit, one translation puts it to worship God by the Spirit. So they're interchangeable, and I think I want you to perceive that. I want you to take that in. Got to serve somebody, got to worship somebody. The book of Daniel has been our focus, and we have been looking at the life of Daniel, a faithful young man who has inspired us. But today we make a shift, and we're going to go to Hananiah, and we're going to go to Mishael and Azariah. You go, say what? (laughs) Probably don't know those names as well. Those are Hebrew names, and they have Hebrew meanings. They're rich in meaning. But these fellows lived in Babylon now, and they got some new names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here we go. The chapter 3 could be titled, The Statue and the Burning, the Blazing Furnace. Sounds like Star Wars, right? You ready? Go to Daniel 3, if you will. We'll read through this. We'll take a look at this. That's where we end up today after... Two weeks in chapter 2 and Tyler's messages, uh, culminating in verse 47, it seems to me, when Nebuchadnezzar told Daniel, after Daniel did this amazing, miraculous thing, where he not only interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but he also revealed the dream, like from nowhere, and boom, he told the king. And the king was so impressed that he says to Daniel, surely... Your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, and you were able to reveal this mystery. Sounds kind of hopeful and exciting, right? That, that Nebuchadnezzar is being touched by the, the impact of Daniel and his sincere faith and what God would do through Daniel. But it isn't too long later. We don't know exactly how long. We read chapter 3. And I would suggest... It's not very long after chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, which is 90 feet high, gold, and 9 feet wide. Noticeable, right? Okay, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, Perfects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, perfects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. You know what you call this? Who's who in Babylon? This is all the key people, and they're all gathered, thousands, to uh, pay tribute to King Nebuchadnezzar and his new statue. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, 
nations and peoples of every language. Now, these were the representatives of all these nations. They came from the, the, the entire empire. It's, it's, it's amazing uh, just thinking of the enormity and the significance of the event. And, and so you get the idea that Nebuchadnezzar didn't hold back on anything here. And this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. Music. There it is. Music. It's pretty uh, central to this event. Must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship him immediately will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Okay, verse 7, therefore, therefore, as soon as. Now, that's a very little phrase, as soon as. You know what that means? They were scared to death. (laughs) As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold, and it could insert the word immediately, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8, at this time, some astrologers. Now, some of your translations say Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were astrologers. They were fascinated with the study of the stars. They made a name for themselves because of this um, significance. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, I don't know why they had to repeat this, but a horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. I think they could have just said, and your wonderful band. <laughs> uh, what a great orchestra. And, and, that, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. Is that true? No, that wasn't true. They said it to their advantage. Pay no attention to your your majesty. They neither serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar goes, oh, really? (laughs) Not not exactly. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? He didn't even let them answer. And then he says, Well, now, (laughs) knowing that You're before me now, and I'm in control. Now, when you hear the sound of the band, (laughs) uh, there you go. They got a personal kind of like, we're going to play for you, just you three guys, right? We're going to play, and we're going to play just for you. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. In other words, it gives them a second chance, and there it is. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing for, uh, furnace. That then what your then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Well, 
That'll, that'll be the clincher, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If, you th- if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. This is the word of the Lord. And you could put right there in verse 18, to be continued. There's a sense of drama here. We wonder what's going to happen next. Most of us know what happens next. But I don't want you to think of that. I want you to think of the situation as if you don't know. And here's these guys. And we admire these guys. We want to be in step with these guys. We want to be able to follow the Lord like they do. At least I do. And so here we have it. 18 verses. And how would you, you kind of like summarize these verses? Well, you, you might look at the verses and kind of identify with what is repeated and what would maybe be a theme, a pretty strong theme. I would suggest you we, could, we could get the theme from the word that's used most in this text. And you could discover that through a wordle. A wordle is when you take the key words of 18 verses, and the ones that are mentioned most get a little bigger font. And so right in the middle, you have worship. And thank goodness God is at least as big as Nebuchadnezzar. And then you have image. And I just thought that was kind of fascinating, that the theme that's easily identified here when it comes to all the characters is this sense of worship. And I, I wonder to myself, what about the worship? Was the worship for the statue or for the king? Now, this might be surprising to you, but in that day, it was not a part of the tradition to worship kings. No, there's too many gods. The kings would only get in the way. And so here's kind of Nebuchadnezzar maneuvering his agenda by doing what? Creating his own god. This is a brand new God. Hey, let's just throw another God into it. And wouldn't you know, his God is the biggest God of all. 90 feet high. Nobody else has an idol as big as Nebuchadnezzar's. So his brand new God is the one that becomes the focal point. But what is the point? Nebuchadnezzar, number one, worshipped power. Power. That was what was really um, motivating him. No doubt about it. In fact, another very repeated theme in, in this uh, storyline is the idea that the image was set up by Nebuchadnezzar. The image he had set up. Seven times. Seven times it says that. It's as if to say, this is my God, this is my statue. So he has an obsession with power, motivated by pride, has a huge ego. It's kind of disappointing to us, really, as we look at this and we see this kind of unfold because when we ended chapter 2, we were really pretty, well, at least I was, kind of hopeful that something good was happening in Nebuchadnezzar, that that God had gotten his attention and it had softened his heart. Mm. Actually, I think it was very short-lived because I think what Nebuchadnezzar did is he then kind of like said, I'm going to make the focus back to me. 
and he made this huge statue. And, and so the verse that I read in verse 47 of chapter 2 just kind of fades away and, and, and seemingly rather quickly. Well, I think that the statue is about ne- ne- uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, because he made it all gold. And in chapter 2, uh, Daniel said something about the statue in his dream. The statue had a head of gold, and then there was, I believe, silver, and then there was bronze thighs and iron feet and so on. Uh, I think that, that was... Uh, if, if it's off a little, it's okay. Because the point is, in verse 38, it says, You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Daniel tells him that. And you know what I think? I think Nebuchadnezzar was, that's the way it should be. <laughs> this is what he, I think he was very, you know, like, oh, I agree. But then that wasn't good enough for Nebuchadnezzar, so he built a statue of all gold from head to foot, as if to say, my kingdom, my empire, is going to last forever. Isn't that interesting? So arrogant. Well, um, I think that he definitely had a sense about uh, wanting to draw attention to himself. I, in my notes, I forgot this part. I, I, was, I, I was thinking, you know, Tyler mentioned that Nebuchadnezzar was probably an atheist. He probably thought all these gods were just, you know, nothing much. And he would manipulate them, as, as we see in this story. But I think N stands for something else. Narcissist. <laughs> I think he's the ultimate narcissist. And it comes out in a movie called Aladdin. At least I think there's a Nebuchadnezzar type person in the movie Aladdin, there's this sorcerer, his name is Jafar, and Jafar, he, he's, he's wanting to have it his way. He seems to me sort of like, uh, motivated like Nebuchadnezzar. And the key, most famous character in the story, I think, is the genie. And the genie is, in the cartoon was Robin Williams, and in the more recent rendition of human characters was Will Smith, and kind of the key role because he has such a personality. Well, Jafar gets a hold of the genie and gets some of his wishes going. And by the time that he comes to his third wish, he's been kind of like ready for everything and anything. And what does Jafar say with his last wish? Genie, make me the most powerful being in the universe. And this is the part, this is this part that really scares kids, but I love it. He gets big and big, and he's swirling around, and his voice gets deeper, and I'm going to whirl the world, that kind of thing, you know? And you can see it in this, he's kind of manipulating the whole universe in his hands, and he's whirling around his smoke and everything like that, and all of a sudden, and it gets lower and lower, I'm having fun, it gets lower and lower, and Sucked right into the genie's lantern forever. (laughs) I love it. Anyway, that story is a foreshadowing of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's life. You'll see. You'll want to come back for the other renditions because that's where we're headed. But in the meantime, uh, Nebuchadnezzar... He's massing this large group of people and they're going to pay homage to his golden image and 
his thinking is if I can control the leaders, I can control the people, right? And, and so there's nothing short of, of Nebuchadnezzar and his uh, uh, skills at manipulating and his insatiable desire as a narcissist to be in control. And it reminded me of um, a scene, kind of a reenactment of Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, uh, something happens. You might know. You might know, you Bible quizzers. <laughs> In G- Genesis 11, there's something called the Tower of Babel. Some people call it Babel. That's only because of that language uh, curriculum. Babel. <laughs> yeah, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Babel, the Tower of Babel. And what was the motivation to build the Tower of Babel in the plains of Babylon? Isn't that interesting? It's most likely in the vicinity that the Tower of Babel was built, so too the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, um, in Genesis 11.4, we read this. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. When I read that, I think of the motivation of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and what he wanted to do. This man was hungry for power. And his hunger for power kind of reveals, at least to me, a real sense of insecurity because he has to have more and more and more power. In fact, when things don't go his way, what happens? He's full of rage. Terror comes out, smoke out of his ears and all those kind of things. And he is actually quite defensive in his seeking after power. And I thought to myself, is there any inkling of Nebuchadnezzar in my life? And you go, oh, no, I'm not even near that. Oh, do I ever get defensive? Sometimes am I easily angered? Is there this kind of underlying, I have to be in control? Uh, I need the last word here. I have to be right and someone else has to be wrong. You know what that's called? Worshiping power. So, we can chalk off Nicodemus as, as, as uh, just a narcissist that doesn't really uh, uh, dovetail into our lives. But I'm telling you, we have selfish impulses that are very strong. And we can worship those or need those to be the way we want them to be. Another character, uh, more than one, uh, because there were a group of them, were the Chaldeans. And in this case, the Chaldeans, I would suggest, worship position. Position. And I I see this in this story uh, as you kind of look at uh, things a little bit behind. What's going on here? In verse 8, we read, At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. That's, that's the introduction. These astrologers, Chaldeans, really that's what they are. I've told you that already. They, um, they have a little backstory to them. Uh, they had been in a very significant position, really. Uh, they were like um, the heroes, the Chaldean heroes, these astrologers. 
And so it's not surprising that they would want to push back to move forward, to elevate themselves. You see, when the Babylonian Empire took over, the Chaldeans became subservient to the Babylonian rule. And that didn't, probably didn't feel good, right? Because they were, that was the, this was uh, the Chaldeans, this was their hometown. They were like top dog, you know? And now they were kind of shoved into the background. And at the same time, here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're outsiders. They're foreigners. And they come in and they get elevated. In chapter 1, we learned that uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, they are 10 times better than all you guys. That had to make them feel good, right? No. And then how about this? We end chapter 2 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being elevated and All this plays into what I would call jealousy. Jealousy. Jealousy motivated them to tell Nebuchadnezzar. These informants already had a negative view of Daniel's friends. They knew the king was very arrogant, and they used that all to their favor. They wanted these men that were promoted to prominent positions to fail. And they they brought that to bear. And so behind them is this idea for position. And I I just, again, I could kind of go, oh, boy, that's just terrible, really. Look at, they're they're trying to push their way into and make a name for themselves and so on. Well, this idea of competition is so interesting to me. I think we live in the most competitive world I really do. In, in Western society, competition is kind of what entertains us. And we just, we're just so drawn to, and we kind of look and vie in the workplace to go, oh, well, I'm ahead of that person. And, and it really, it's just so much a part of our culture that we don't even realize how competitive we can get. And then, and then factor in race, and, and then uh, education and economics and accomplishments and all these things can kind of w- gradually kind of creep into our lives. And then we can be surprised that we envy someone else or there's a resentment that is built or criticism that comes so naturally now. We can criticize so easily and we can gossip like it's just okay to do. It just creeps into our life. Why? Because we're not settled with the place that God has put us in, we need something better to make ourselves feel okay. And this can, this can affect us. And, um, and, and uh, we can be more like the Chaldeans than we think. Well, two negative examples, right? <sighs> really, give me something positive, Barry. All right. Here we have our three guys. These three guys shift the gears and they are righteous, humble young men and they did not display the defensiveness of Nebuchadnezzar and they did not display the combativeness of their peers. No. Daniel's friends worshipped the personal God, Yahweh, one that they knew one that they obeyed 
no matter what, the one true God, I am that I am. And that made all the difference. That's really the culmination of this story. Here we have it in verse 17. It says, the God we serve. They announced the God we serve. They could have easily, as easily said, the God we worship. It could have been uh, uh, right there also. And then the most amazing verse in the book. That's saying a lot, isn't it? The most amazing verse in the book. It says, but even if he does not, and the word right there, rescue. Even if he does not rescue, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 18, it takes my breath away. Is that my posture? My life is in your hands, God. Come what may. Man, I can say that so easily. It seems to me it's like Jesus' prayer. And not my will, but your will be done. That's what it seems to me, the heart of their prayer. And so I'm just, I'm thinking of them and I'm, 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 uh, I'm impressed, but they had an out. They had an out. Verse 15, they had an out. They get ushered in. They're not immediately thrown. The, the, the story, they're, they're on trial, so to speak, before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second chance. He says, okay, let's, let's kind of get to brass tacks here. And um, I'm going to strike up the band. And if you bow down this time, we're, we're all good to go. Right? And they could have thought. I read this in the Life Application Bible. They had all these opportunities. They seemed like legitimate excuses. They could have thought, we will fall down, but we won't actually worship the idol. Or we won't become idol worshipers, but we'll worship it just this time, and then we'll ask God to forgive us. Pretty good. Or this one, the king has absolute power. We must obey him. God will understand. Another one, aren't these good excuses? Man, they're on verse 15 of chapter 3 in the Life Application Bible, if you have to look at them. And number four, the the king appointed us. We owe this to him. This is a foreign land, so God will excuse us for following the customs of the land. Sounds, Sounds pretty reasonable to me. Our ancestors set up idols in God's temple. This isn't half as bad. We're we're not hurting anybody who hit pretty close to home. If we get ourselves killed and some pagans take over high positions, they won't help our people in exile. There it is. The excuse of all excuses. We can do it. We can follow through. We'll just, you see, all the excuses in the world were at their disposal. But something was deposited in their heart. 
something that would just be riveted on their mind and it would motivate them and their approach to life would be oriented in this direction. Exodus 20, verse 3. Boom. Cemented in their heart. We, you, shall have no other gods before me. And what does that mean? Verse 4. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. These men are the focal point of the story. There there it is right there for us. And um, I stopped at verse 18 on purpose just because I wanted us to contemplate this to put ourselves in their shoes, to see how peaceful and confident they were, peaceful and confident they were in light of the situation, a situation that none of us will face most likely, but other situations less intense. And do we have the same peace and confidence? That's the the meaning of the story. That's why it's in the book, so that we would have the same peace and confidence that they do. And how? How was it? How was it that they could have that? Well, it was the theme of the book, and I'll lead to it. But first, what about us? Why don't we have the same peace and confidence as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? First of all, I would suggest that what gets in the way is my focus is on me. My focus is on me. That's, that, that is the, the, the number one thing that's, skews things. It, 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 it causes me to compromise sometimes because I'm thinking about me first. I live in a culture. I'm given the message time and again. I'm given the message 10 times more that I should watch out for myself than I should seek the best that God has to offer. Me. It's about me and what I want and what I need. It just, just, it just weaves in. And when, and, and when the storyline of Bob Dylan comes, you got to serve somebody. And if that serve somebody is me, then all my energy is directed towards me. And worshiping God gets fuzzy at best. Just ask Nick and Ebus. No, it's not Nicodemus. <laughs> I knew I was going to say that. I had said that about four times when I was going over my notes. <laughs> he was a good guy. Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, boy. What do I want my life to look like? What would be a truth that would hang on for me? Galatians 2.20. See if this works for you. This is it. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That will lead to true worship. How about this? How about the pressure to conform? I live in a society where there's the, the acceptable seems uh, divergent from what God has in mind. The, 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 the people around me, the opinions that are shared, the concern of being liked, it's all just so confusing. How did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
Stand up to their peers. How will Daniel in chapter 6, with the same kind of tension, remain faithful? How will they do it amongst people and peer pressure and opinions and so many directions that are pulling you in so many ways? How will we do it? With a sold-out worship for our God. Come. The disposition of peace and confidence. With a sold-out worship for our God, our one true God. Come, the disposition of peace and confidence. That's the key. That's the theme of the story. And I see this in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when it says, So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. This is truly the way to worship him. Verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You see, the way that Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would think is that there is this highest value No other gods before me. But there's so many alternatives. So many alternatives get in the way. There's so many alternatives that pull and push and tug on our hearts. And some of them, you know, are like about good things and others are really pulling us in a negative direction. But the fact is, when we worship the wrong thing or the wrong people or the wrong person, it's called idolatry. And John said in 1 John 5, verse 21, the very last thing he said, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. We know the pull of a sexual world, uh, the idea of money and addiction and possessions. We say, oh, no, no, I'm not going that way. But also think of the positive things like pleasure and hobbies and promotions and politics and relationships. It just gets so scattered. But not for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Something was clear. Something was riveted. Did they have temptations in their lives? You bet they did. But, but how did they? How did they remain with a posture of peace, a disposition of confidence? How did they do it? There was one true God overall that they worshipped. There was really only one they truly worshipped. Who do you truly worship? Rian, Tyler, Rose. As we gather to worship in this place, it's a catalyst to live a life of worship where 24-7, the heartbeat of our lives is that what do you want, God? How can I be connected to you? I want to be in step with you. I want to, I want to honor you and adore you. 
I want that to be the heartbeat of my life because I know that's what it's going to be like in heaven. And I want to have heaven on earth. Oh, God, help me. Help me to be a person of worship. And I love the fact that we have the communion meal. The communion meal is a meal of worship, gratitude, and appreciation. So I'm going to invite you to the table. This is our, your personal connection and affirmation to God. And, and, and I invite you to the table. Take, there are two cups there, you know that. Take them back to your seat. Have a moment of dedication and worship. Thankful for what Jesus has done. Thankful that we have access to God. Thankful that we know the living God. And we want to live for him. And no close seconds. Let's spend the last 10 minutes worshiping God, coming to communion as you feel led, and dedicating our lives to a life of worship. Will you please stand? Wanting to greet you and